Thank, thank, good afternoon, everybody. <laughs> Wonderful. Uh, we're in Psalm 126. If you've got a Bible with you or on your phone, uh, do you please um, keep that open. Uh, one practical note as well. You've got on your handouts uh, a, a, an overview of where we're going with session two. Um, just to say as we go... Um, some of the headings uh, on your outline uh, have, have been uh, slightly rewritten, are being slightly rewritten. This isn't quite a live action demonstration of rewriting a sermon as we go. It's not that. We're not putting the, the track down in front of the train as the train is moving, but it might feel like we are. Uh, but we will be completely fine, I promise. There will also be a couple of questions for us to discuss um, as we go through. I, I want to... Um, offer this session this afternoon, uh, not so much as a, uh, an apologetic or uh, a rational defense of belief in God um, in the face of suffering. If that's your question this afternoon, if you're thinking, how can there possibly be a God? What can we say to our friends or colleagues who say, how can there be a God when there is such evil and suffering in the world? That's a good question. I'm sure there are resources on, on your church website. I'm sure there are talks that you could go and listen to and download um, and uh, to think further about that question. Uh, but I, I'm, I don't want to address that particularly this afternoon. My concern is, my question is, um, what is suffering doing in the life of a Christian believer, particularly as it relates to joy. We said earlier that, that joy is a, a growing disposition. It's, it's an attitude of uh, our hearts and our minds, uh, of gladness, of delight in God. Um, and how does that happen? How is that possible uh, with the presence of suffering in our lives? Now, it sometimes happens that um, for some people, uh, an experience of suffering either their own or someone else's, uh, causes them to turn away from the Christian faith quickly. So some people, uh, a Christian goes through a tough time and they say, that's it, I'm, I'm done with Christianity. Uh, I, I cannot keep going, uh, believing in an all-powerful and an all-loving God um, uh, who has allowed this awful thing to happen to me or to somebody that I love. But the, the greater danger, I think, uh, is that more often the experience of suffering for a believer uh, just becomes spiritually debilitating. That if we don't know what to do with suffering, if we're not prepared for it, it just gradually wears us away over time. That over the course of months or years, uh, we just find that gradually uh, joy seems harder to find and, and to get hold of. There's a, an American uh, psychiatrist and author, a guy called uh, Kurt Thompson, who's written quite a lot about the nature of um, spirituality, particularly as it relates to um, desire and suffering. And he's written a book called The Soul of Shame, in which he says that one of the effects of suffering in the life of a believer uh, is that it can produce a sense of shame and fear. That when we lose things that we've loved uh, or hoped in or depended upon, we just completely lose our, our bearings. We don't know what to make anymore of who we are. We don't know what to make of who God is. We don't know how to reconcile the things that we believe about God with our experience. 
In other words, suffering has the potential to unmake us, to undo us from the inside out. Kurt Thompson writes that shame wants very much to infect every element of the mind in order to distort God's story and offer another narrative. Shame wants to infect every element of the mind in order to distort God's story and offer another narrative. And you can see in that circumstance, in that situation, how do we keep hold of joy? What's, what's going on with joy and, and our uh, growing disposition uh, of joy? Now, it might be that those words describe something of your situation at the moment. Maybe you're going through a particularly hard time uh, in your own life at the moment. Maybe you are watching someone that you love suffer at the moment. And if that's so, I, I don't want to minimise what you are going through. That's not the intention of this afternoon. Um, but I want to suggest that it isn't um, the final word. Some of you have shared stories with me already, just over the course of um, this morning, of things that are going on that, that sound hard, that sound tough. And I, I, I don't for a moment want to uh, minimise uh, any of that. And more broadly, uh, let me just say that as a, a church culture in the affluent West, I don't think we really know what to do with people who are suffering. Uh, I, I'm sure, uh, maybe this doesn't describe you um, here at Inspire St. James, and apologies uh, if that is the case. But I think we need to be really aware of the ways in which the world we live in shapes us as a church. And we live in a world which places so much value at the moment on performance, on the external, on things going really, really well, on, on the elimination of suffering and weakness. Maybe you see that in the... Um, in the Silicon Valley tech bros who are investing in, uh, it's called an eternal life project at the moment. Jeff Bezos is putting lots of money into a research and development program uh, that is all about cell rejuvenation uh, in an attempt to kind of live longer. Maybe we see it in the conversation that's going on at the moment in the political world about uh, assisted dying. We kind of see the sense of... Uh, we just don't know what to do with people who are suffering, and we would rather that it's not there. And if that's true in the world, we're deceiving ourselves if we don't think we will be tempted to feel that pressure in the church. We desperately want to present to God, to each other, to the world, a successful church where everything's going well. And so when suffering hits, we're not quite sure what to do with it. We don't have a category for it. I'm always shocked by, I've read it a number of times, as I'm sure you have, but I'm always shocked by um, the description of Job in the Old Testament, the kind of the righteous sufferer. I don't know if you remember the description of Job in Job chapter 2, but he's described uh, after everything that's happened to him as being uh, covered from head to foot in sores and boils. And when his friends find him, he's kind of scraping himself with a piece of pottery. It's kind of painful and somehow slightly kind of repulsive. And I think that's precisely the point. I think that when we see suffering, we just don't want to get close to it because it's hard and we don't know what to do with it. So how does all of that relate to joy? What is joy doing in our lives 
when suffering is such a real uh, reality and presence in our lives so often. Let's break just for a moment to have a, a, a couple of questions uh, to reflect just on some of that. Firstly, just let me ask you, uh, what is your automatic reaction to suffering, either your own or someone else's? What's your kind of instinctive reaction when you encounter suffering, either in your life or in someone else's? Secondly, just let me ask you, are there any ways in which you have seen suffering shape you in the Christian life? Are there any ways in which suffering has shaped you in the Christian life? Let's have three minutes just to reflect uh, on that, then I'll call us back together. There'll be more time for conversation as we go, but let's, uh, let's turn to... Psalm 126, and uh, the first heading on your outline, the strange root of joy, or uh, what suffering doesn't prove. What suffering doesn't prove. Uh, Now, Psalm 126, and uh, the psalm shows us really clearly that for the Christian believer, suffering is not evidence of God's condemnation. First thing to see from Psalm 126, for the Christian believer... Suffering is not evidence of God's condemnation. Now, look, the situation of the psalmist uh, uh, or the people of Israel uh, as a whole is described in verse 4. And that's the prayer, the plea at the heart of Psalm 126. Verse 4, restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. The Negev is a, a desert wilderness in southern Israel, uh, and uh, it's, it's, it's a desert there's nothing there. It's dry, it's dusty, it's barren. It's not uh, fertile pasture land. It's simply uh, desert wilderness. And for whatever reason, we don't quite know why, that's where the psalmist locates the people of Israel. That's their current context, uh, their current situation. They are in a barren wilderness. It's a time of suffering. We don't really know why. It could be Uh, that they are um, in exile, it could be um, famine in the land, it could be uh, a military defeat. To use the category that we heard a moment ago from Kurt Thompson, it's a time of loss for them. Uh, But what what does the psalm do? Well, the pilgrims who are chanting this psalm on their journey up to Jerusalem only get to verse 4 after verses 1 to 3. That's the kind of uh, remarkable insight that you came on the Inspire and James weekend away for, isn't it? You get to verse 4 after verses 1 to 3. But what are they doing in verses 1 to 3? Well, notice that they are reinforcing God's story. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dreamed. Our mouths were filled with laughter, our tongues with songs of joy. And it was said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us, and we are filled with joy. Again, we don't quite know what the people of Israel are looking back on. It's a time when the Lord has done something wonderful for his people. He's restored the fortunes of Zion. It could be describing the return of the people of Israel from exile. It could be describing uh, some great military victory, like in the time of the judges, when the people of Israel have been oppressed and now they've been delivered. We, we don't quite know. But whatever it is, uh, it was so big that everyone knew about it. It was said among the nations, the Lord's done great things for them, and the nations are dead right. The Lord has done great things 
for us, and we are filled with joy. So their current experience, their time of being in the Negev, verse 4, uh, is not what defines God's heart towards them. What's going on? That They're reaffirming God's story, how he's acted in their lives and in their history, which gives them confidence that they are not experiencing the Negev because God has forgotten about them, or because God no longer loves them, or because God uh, is trying to teach them something in particular that that they they need to know, Uh, they are confident as they reaffirm God's story and heart towards them that their current circumstances are not evidence that God no longer loves them or has forgotten about them. Suffering is not evidence uh, that God no longer loves us, that when we go through hard seasons... When we experience loss in all of its forms, uh, it's not evidence that God doesn't care or that God uh, has got bad purposes uh, towards us or that he's trying to be mean. At this point, I was going to, um, I was too late to get it onto the PowerPoint, so this is entirely my fault. I was going to play um, a clip that I came across. I was doing the rounds on Twitter, on social media, maybe um, six months ago. Um, It was a clip of um, a press conference that was uh, given by the Oklahoma Sooners, who are, I'm getting some nods, so I know that I'm on the right track with this. Uh, They are uh, the women's softball team uh, at Oklahoma University in the States. I don't know what softball is. So uh, someone, if someone could tell me afterwards, I'd actually really appreciate that. But the Oklahoma Sooners uh, gave gave a press conference and um, it was remarkable. Uh, I, I'd really encourage you just to go online and Google Oklahoma Sooners press conference. You'll probably be taken straight to it. But the four um, women who were on the team were asked this question. They, they were said, uh, they were asked by the journalist, how do you keep um, kind of going? How do you keep the joy during difficult seasons? Because they're, you know, they're really successful, they're doing really well. And they said, well, what happens when tough times come and uh, all of a sudden you're not winning anymore? Uh, and they said, we've got this little thing that we do on our team, this little kind of um, uh, sign that they give to each other. It kind of just means eyes up. And they said, you've got to have something uh, more uh, solid. You've got to have something that's able to give you joy Uh, even when results are going against you and things are really tough. And that joy for them is nothing less than the love of Jesus. They said, uh, we know uh, that when things get hard, and they will get hard, our joy isn't rooted in our circumstances, and our circumstances don't tell us, they don't reflect how we're doing uh, with Jesus. We know that he loves us and that he has got us, and with our identity rooted in him, we know that we're going to be okay. And the video is just so helpful because those players are not, are not rooting... Oh, here we are. Oh, ta-da. I don't know. Miguel, mag- that's magic. Okay, can you just give us the, the first two players? I mean, you talk about keeping the joy of the game, but I'm curious. It's a long season, right? And you guys have had the target on your back the entire time, the win streak being number one. How do you handle the unique pressure that comes with that? How do you keep the joy for so long? I mean, anxiety seems like a thing that can very easily set in. Well, the only way that you can have a joy that doesn't fade away is from the Lord. And any other type of joy is actually happiness that comes from circumstances, 
and outcomes. Um, I think Coach has said this before, but joy from the Lord is really the only thing that can keep you motivated, um, uh, just in a good mindset, uh, no matter the outcomes. Thankfully, we've had a lot of success this year, but if it was the other way around, uh, joy from the Lord is the only thing that can keep you embracing those memories, moments, friendships, and all of that. So uh, that's really the only the only answer to that because there's no other way that softball can bring you that um, because of how much failure comes in it and just how much of a roller coaster the game can be. 1,000% agree with Grace Lyons. Um, I went through that my freshman year. I, I was so happy to win the college. I've talked about this before, but I was just so happy that we won the College World Series, but I didn't feel joy. I didn't have, I didn't know what to do the next day. I didn't know what to do for that following week. I didn't feel filled and I had to find Christ in that. And I think that is what makes our team so strong is that we're not afraid to lose because if, it's not the end of the world if we do lose. Yes, obviously we worked our butts off to be here and we want to win, but it's not the end of the world because our life is in Christ and that's all that matters. Yeah, um, I think a huge thing that we've really just latched onto is eyes up and you guys see us doing this and pointing up but we're really like fixing our eyes on Christ and that's something where like they were saying you can't find a film all right what <laughs> let's let's stop there that's okay that's brilliant thank that's amazing Miguel Th thank you so much for that um now that's that's just so helpful right because it it just shows what it's uh, what it looks like um, to understand that, that joy isn't rooted in circumstances. And look, we see that really clearly displayed more than anywhere else uh, in the life of Jesus himself, don't we? Because if we were ever to fall into the trap of thinking, uh, if I'm walking closely with God, uh, nothing bad will ever happen to me, then one glance at the life of Jesus tells us that that can't be the case. Uh, here is uh, someone... Uh, who the Apostle John tells us is in the closest possible relationship with the Father. It's an extraordinary thought, isn't it? That Jesus um, of Nazareth, the eternal Son of God, is in the closest possible relationship with the Father. And yet he lives a life where he faces hostility, betrayal, abandonment, injustice, physical and emotional pain and turmoil. Uh, which tells us, uh, if it weren't for the resurrection, if we were to judge Jesus only uh, on appearances, you wouldn't necessarily say, here is someone deeply loved by God. Here is someone who is walking closely with God. He's a man of sorrows, and he's acquainted with grief. And yet, and yet we know uh, that his suffering doesn't indicate that somehow uh, the, the father has lost patience with him, or the father doesn't love him anymore. Uh, suffering is not evidence that God has abandoned us. Let's take a moment just to reflect on that, and uh, two more minutes, uh, two or three minutes to discuss. Uh, one question, uh, why is it that we use our circumstances as a measure of our standing with God? Why is it that we use our circumstances as a measure of our standing with God? Let's take three minutes to reflect on that, then I'll call us back together. I want us to think, secondly, about um, the ends of sorrow. The ends of sorrow. Not just the end, but the ends, plural. Uh, because uh, we know, we're told really clearly uh, in the Bible, that uh, sorrow and, and suffering will come to an end. 
uh, we're told that really, really clearly. We know that sorrows will give way to joy, that weeping may last for the night, but joy comes in the morning. So uh, in the book of Revelation, the last book of the Bible, the Apostle John has a glorious vision where he sees uh, the new creation, the the new Jerusalem, the, the heavenly city coming down to earth out of heaven. There's that glorious promise that the Lord himself will wipe away every tear from our eyes, that there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. One day we will reach the end of sorrow. But Psalm 126 tells us something else. It turns that angle around, not just to see that there is an end to our sorrows, but to see that our sufferings and our sorrows have an end. They have a purpose. They aren't simply random and meaningless. So in verses 5 and 6 of the psalm, the imagery uh, changes. Those who sow with tears will reap with songs of joy Those who go out weeping, carrying seed to sow, will return with songs of joy, carrying sheaves with them. We're told about a farmer. The psalmist has a farmer in view uh, who goes out with a whole load of seed and comes home with with an enormous harvest. The imagery is slightly ambiguous. We don't know whether the farmer is planting his tears, whether he's watering uh, the seed with his tears. But either way, the, the point is that joy doesn't just come After suffering, it comes through suffering. So for the Christian, it's not just that suffering um, kind of is uh, isn't evidence of God's absence, but that some that suffering is doing something positively, that it produces joy. Here's the way the Apostle Paul puts it in two Corinthians four seventeen. He can say. This light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. Notice the verb there, is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. In other words, Christians aren't simply waiting for suffering to end, but in the gospel, in uh, the way the Lord works, our sorrows are, are doing something. That if we approach sorrow rightly, it produces a harvest of joy in us. I suppose another way of putting that is simply to say that there are some joys that are only available to us along a pathway marked sorrow and suffering. And again, think of, think of Jesus himself. Think of what we're told about him in Hebrews chapter 12. That for the joy that was set before him, Jesus endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of God. So the joy that Jesus was looking forward to was the rescue of his people. You and, you and me being uh, restored and forgiven being uh, adopted as the children of God, being brought home, being brought back together. You and I being made into the family of God. But that joy was only available by walking along one path. There was only one path that would get him there, the path that led through Calvary. C.S. Lewis, um, who was the inspiration for some of... uh, 
well, for the title of this series, wrote a lot about the connection between suffering and joy. And, and he does it in a number of ways in the Narnia Chronicles. Um, but there's one particular moment um, in the first of the Chronicles, the magician's nephew. Some of you will probably, many of us might know um, that story. The story re- revolves around two children, uh, Diggory and Polly, who are able to travel between worlds um, because of their mad inventor uncle. And um, in doing so, they unintentionally bring evil into Narnia. So they arrive in Narnia just at, at the moment of Narnia's creation. But if you know the story, the kind of, they accidentally bring the white witch uh, with them into Narnia. And in so doing, they, they kind of ruin um, the creation of Narnia right at its moment of creation. Diggory is offered a chance to make amends by going to a mountaintop garden to collect a fruit. And uh, the fruit will kind of offer Narnia some protection from Jadis, the the white witch. She won't be able to do her worst because of the fruit that he goes to collect. But when he gets there, he realises that he has a choice. Because the same apple that he uh, could collect and take back to Aslan the lion uh, would also heal his uh, terminally ill mother. He realises that he could just take the apple and go home. He could go back to his own world with the apple. uh, And uh, uh, if he did that, she would be healed immediately. Uh, He he makes the agonising decision to take the apple back to Aslan and is told that he's done the right thing. Uh, And Aslan says this to him. He says, uh, if you had taken it back to heal your mother it would not have resulted in your joy or hers. And eventually, uh, you would both have looked back and said it would have been better for her to die in her illness. It's an extraordinary piece of writing. Uh, And amazingly, in the story, joy does eventually come to Diggory and his mother. But Lewis knows that there isn't a shortcut. Lewis knows that the only road to that joy cuts through the valley of the shadow of death. And that it's only in walking through that valley that you find that grace is sufficient. That you find that the good shepherd will lead you and guide you and be your sustaining grace even there in the darkness. Now let me be clear. Uh, None of that is to say that suffering is good in and of itself. None of that is to say that we uh, ought to pursue it um, or that we ought to kind of look for it. Uh, But it is to say that when it comes, that because of the gospel, because of Jesus' death and resurrection, our suffering has an end. That the gospel is big enough to turn even our suffering on its head, such that our suffering becomes a pathway to joy. Now, sometimes we get to see um, how that end becomes clear to us. Sometimes we, are, we, we work out and we're given uh, an insight, understanding into how suffering works out for joy. Imagine someone who um, picks up an injury uh, and so they can't play uh, football, they can't play sport for their team uh, for a few months. They've got to take some time off to, to recover and uh, uh, get better so that they can play again. And during that time of not being able to play, they realise that um, the sports team that they're part of, uh, because they're not Christians, actually there's, there's a huge opportunity there for kind of outreach and evangelism and witness that they haven't taken. And so that kind of break 
gives them some time to refocus, to rethink, to kind of come before the Lord again and to think, actually, there's much more that I could be doing here uh, with these guys uh, that, that I'm playing with. And so that break gives them some time uh, to work that through. Maybe it's some uncertainty at work. Maybe you're having a, a really difficult time at work. Um, you've got a, a difficult boss or a complicated colleague or someone that you manage and they're just a complete nightmare. And you don't know what to do with it. You're finding it really, really hard just to get into the office every day. But you start praying about it. And praying and praying and praying because you don't know what to do. And after a while, you realize, that actually, this situation is hard and complicated. But I've been praying about this more than I've prayed about anything for a long time. And that closeness with the Lord, that sense of his presence actually is a joy that I wouldn't trade. I, I, I know that there is something that's happening here that is being really helpful spiritually to me. But sometimes that end isn't clear to us. Sometimes we carry burdens and we just don't know why. We're, we're not told. We can see all sorts of things that might be the case, but, but we don't know why the Lord has planned things like this. But we can say with Paul that in the gospel, we know that this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory, such that one day we will look back and say, I wouldn't have had it differently. Let's take a moment for, uh, just to reflect uh, on that um, and just to work that through briefly. Just let me ask you, um, what do you make of the idea? that suffering uh, has a purpose. What do you make of the idea that suffering has a purpose? Are there any times in your Christian life where uh, suffering or loss has produced joy for you? Let's take three minutes just to uh, reflect on that on our tables, then I will draw us back together. Those two questions again. What do you make of the idea that suffering has a purpose? Are there any uh, joys that times of suffering or loss have produced for you? So what does it mean um, to sow our tears? What does... Um, I, I, don't, I think most of us probably aren't farmers uh, in the room this afternoon. What does it mean for us to sow um, our tears and uh, to do uh, what Psalm 126 uh, invites us to do? Lastly, the nature um, of joy... Uh, I want to just close with a couple of suggestions for what sowing our tears uh, looks like, uh, for what it means for us. Here's the first one. Um, the first way to sow our tears is to learn the posture of lament. To learn the posture of lament. That seems a strange thing to say on a weekend when we're talking about joy. But our temptation always, uh, is to try to ignore our pain, uh, to cover it over, to, to draw a curtain around it, to kind of move away from it. But Psalm 126 would encourage us not to do that, but instead to bring our sorrows and our griefs to God in lament. Of the 150 psalms, uh, around 65 are psalms of lament, 
uh, which tells us that lament is a, a deeply important part of human experience. Lament is the cry of the heart before a God who listens and responds. Lament is the cry of, a heart, of the heart before a God who listens and responds. Uh, and Psalm 126 uh, tells us what that looks like. It involves directly addressing God, directly speaking to him, describing our pain and depending on Christ, asking for his help, his perspective, his presence, his comfort. In one way, I think saying all of that makes it sound as though lament is kind of managed and formulaic. You know, you kind of direct your address to God, you uh, depend uh, upon Christ, you describe uh, your sorrows and uh, your griefs. And I don't, and I don't want to say that's what lament kind of always has to um, involve, which is why I say learn the posture of lament rather than saying there's a particular formula uh, that we must follow. The Psalms give us forms of words, if that's helpful, and, and they show us what lament uh, might look like. But they also tell us that it's safe to speak and feel in God's presence. That it's safe to speak and to feel in God's presence. So first, learn the posture of lament. Second, uh, keep looking to the cross. And the question is, what, why is it safe to speak and feel in God's presence? Why is it safe to speak to a God like that? And the answer is that, that the cross tells us that God knows what suffering is like. That Jesus Christ came into the world as a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. That he experienced suffering, that he stood at the graveside of a friend and he wept tears. Come back uh, briefly with me to the, the creation of Narnia um, for the last time. Uh, the, in that remarkable situation, that uh, scene that Lewis describes, uh, Diggory has got the apple and he's standing before Aslan the lion and he's holding it out to him, but his heart is kind of breaking under the weight of the decision that uh, he's made. He's distraught about what this might mean for his mother. And Lewis tells us that he, he looks up at, at the lion and, and what he sees uh, in Aslan's eyes are big, bright tears, which make him realise that Aslan must really be sorrier about his mother than he was himself. And that can only be true uh, of a God who knows what suffering is like, of a God uh, who knows what it's like to cry out, why have you forsaken me? To pray the prayer, let this cup of suffering pass from me. Learn the posture of lament. Keep looking to the cross. And none of that means uh, that suffering will come to an end automatically. None of that means that all of a sudden uh, our pain will stop and go away. The scriptures are, are full of honest prayers from people uh, who are struggling, from David asking God to look away so that he would have some peace, to Peter asking Jesus to depart from him because Jesus' presence has exposed uh, his own sin. But if we sow our tears rightly, if we look to the cross, we won't lose our joy. In fact, our tears will turn into joy. 
and we'll be enabled to draw near ourselves to other people who are suffering. We'll be enabled uh, not to turn away uh, from our suffering family and friends uh, and the world around us. We'll be enabled to do as Job's friends did, to go and sit with those who are suffering and to go and be comfort and joy to them when they need to be held. Let me uh, draw us um, to a close there. I'm going to just give us a moment of quiet to uh, reflect, um, perhaps to bring particular griefs, sorrows of our own uh, before the Lord, perhaps to pray uh, for someone that we know who is suffering at the moment. Then I'll um, draw us to a close in prayer before I hand back uh, to Mark. Let me just say, if anyone would like to kind of talk this through more deeply, if anyone would like to pray uh, about a particular situation in your own life, uh, please come and find me after the session. I, I know something's starting straight away, but I'm very happy to be around for um, some, a little while to, to pray, um, if that would be helpful for anyone in particular. But a moment of quiet, uh, then I will draw us together um, uh, in prayer. The Lord has done great things for us, and we are filled with joy. Restore our fortunes, Lord, like streams in the Negev. Heavenly Father, we want to rejoice in all that you are to us in and through your Son. Thank you that his suffering means that one day suffering will have an end. Thank you that his suffering uh, means that our suffering uh, here and now isn't pointless, uh, but is a handmaid of joy to us. We pray as we go through hard times that you would help us to keep our eyes fixed on your son, that we would draw near to him and rejoice that he knows, that he hears and listens and that through all that he is to us, he will turn our suffering into joy. In his name we pray. Amen. Mark.